trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep and detailed discussion about sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode has been around since before the term intellectual dark web was coined. One could argue she was even instrumental in its inception. Paula Wright is a graduate student in evolutionary psychology, a writer, actress and comic. Her substack is called Dangerous Ideas and her journey into academia began when she founded a Facebook forum called Darwinian Gender Studies. This brought many academics, thinkers and writers to its discussion threads including now Quilla editor Claire Lehman, Gad Saad and David Buss. Paula came from a working class background and left school with no qualifications. She went into academia relatively late and became fascinated by the subject of evolutionary psychology, which she believed could be used as a lens to explain aspects of feminism as well as other societal issues. In this episode, we discuss how Paula got into academia, how Darwinian gender studies came to be and some of the issues she writes about. I came across Paula through her perspective on rape and the current conversation around it and we explore why she stopped identifying as a feminist when she said she found out the truth about rape statistics and prosecutions, cancel culture and the female dynamic to it. For Paula's mental health we discuss her diagnosis of autism in her 40s, how she's lived with ADHD throughout her life and her experience of medication for anxiety and how it's helped her mental health. We also discussed the sexual abuse that was inflicted upon her family by her stepfather. Her stepfather sexually abused both of Paula's two sisters and attempted to sexually abuse Paula as well. Thankfully, he didn't succeed. We talk about the impact that that had on her family, if it affected her relationship with men and how, after multiple mistrials, her stepfather was finally convicted for the crimes he committed. I'm incredibly grateful to Paula for discussing such a horrific period of her life and her family's. I hope this episode gives victim survivors of sexual abuse hope that you can heal and justice can be done. So this is how my conversation with Paula Wright went. Paula Wright, welcome to the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and checking in with me. I was so excited to interview you after William's recommendation to me. How are you getting on? How are you? I'm doing really well. I've got COVID, but um, I'm not really suffering particularly okay well that's good (laughs) and it's not contagious over the internet so that's good as well yeah I had covid for the second time a few weeks ago so yeah I was in the same boat as you the the isolation yeah I had the first one on Christmas Eve 2020 yeah 2020 so yeah I've had it twice now but yeah the isolation was far worse than the illness thankfully yeah I'm very grateful to you Paula for sharing what will undoubtedly be an extremely interesting podcast hopefully but and also some at times very painful experiences but I know this will help loads of my listeners so without further ado let's start the show. 
want to talk about your academic journey first, Paula. So tell me how and why you got into academia, because I believe you got into it fairly late. So what inspired you to give it a go? Yeah, I did. I left school with, without any qualifications and a recommendation from the careers advisor to get a job in Tesco's on the cheese counter. Well, it was that or the crisp factory, you know. But um, <laughs> I didn't really kind of want to do that. But having no qualifications, you know, I couldn't really convince anybody that I was worth anything, particularly at that time. So I kind of became an actor. I was good at mimicking and I kind of travelled around Europe and Britain for well, a good 10 years, 15 years maybe. And just doing that, just kind of as an itinerant really, until I was given fluoxetine, ostensibly for depression and anxiety when I was around about 30. And it kind of opened up a lot of opportunities for me because it, it cured to every kind of extent. The anxiety, I wasn't really suffering, I think, from depression at all. It was just kind of anxiety. And at the time, I didn't know at the time, it was because I was um, undiagnosed Asperger's as well. So where the fluoxetine kind of cured the anxiety, the social anxiety, which was kind of crippling before then, and also dimmed the stress response, which was constantly activated. I began to be able to, well, just kind of think abstractly and logically. And I just became really interested in evolutionary psychology. I was able to kind of synthesize ideas where previously, like I say before, because of the constant stress response stimulus, I couldn't do that before. It was kind of living in the moment, constantly just being battered by stimuli. Whereas after the philosophy, I was kind of able to just stop and think because I didn't have any qualifications like previously I'd said. I kind of had to go and do a degree that you didn't actually need qualifications to get in, <laughs> which was a humanities degree. <laughs> Uh, it was our history degree, actually, where I learned a lot about Marxism and feminism and film and design and architecture and lots of different things. But yeah, the overarching theory that's put onto all these things with art and art criticism and stuff was the feminist and Marxist feminist theory, which I learned a lot about. And I kind of decided that I wanted to, because in my own time, I was reading evolutionary psychology. And I kind of saw that these two kind of things, feminism and evolutionary psychology, could help feminism a lot with its premises. And so I decided to do that, to create a kind of synthesis, to write that for my dissertation, putting together these two kind of unlikely bedfellows. And that's how I kind of came across the idea of what I call Darwinian gender studies, which is kind of gender studies with an objective scientific perspective. It's not, it's not a feminist, it's not critical theory. It's gender studies with critical thinking. And that was my kind of way into it. But then I had a baby <laughs> and I was working class, still didn't have much money. And I knew I wasn't really going to, again, because I wasn't a good candidate for kind of scholarships on paper, not a good kind of academic candidate at all. I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to afford to go on and do a master's and a PhD for quite a while. So I created, I mean, at first I went on to the Richard Dawkins forums because they were kind of the place to go to talk about, what was it? It was, uh, something was kicking off at the time, it was Elevator Gate or something. So the culture war was kind of really nascent at that time, <laughs> but I could see, certainly from what I've read about feminism, it wasn't going to really get any better, I didn't think. By this time I'd read every essay from evolutionary psychologists, you know, reaching over the barricades to feminists, saying, please, you know, we're doing this in good faith. Evolutionary psychology isn't biological determinism, all of this kind of thing. And feminists just basically weren't interested. No matter what they said, they weren't interested. And I kind of thought, mm. this isn't going to get any better. And then Elevator Gate happened. And what 
I didn't know at the time, because I just suspected this was just kind of radical feminism again, but this was the beginning of intersectional feminism coming into the mainstream. It didn't actually get... What is Elevator Gate, Paul? Elevator Gate, before, oh, if I can um, remember. In case the listeners don't know. Right, this is just from memory. This was... The atheist was on the Richard Dawkins forums because Richard Dawkins had just written a book called The God Delusion. So Very he, famous book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing was, Richard Dawkins is a sociobiologist and an ethologist, a human ethologist. So he's a supporter of evolutionary psychology. So I thought this place would be a really good, yet friendly place. But unfortunately, the Richard Dawkins forums after the God Delusion became flooded with atheists who suddenly thought because they were atheists, they were, you know, bulletproof rationalists <laughs> and um and, uh, and i mean this book's great but it's not science you know what i mean it's philosophy so you know all these groups kind of started up at the time like i love science and it was all kind of scientistic and scientism and this kind of science love and it wasn't science at all you know you can't call atheism it's not a scientific question but anyway so the richard dawkins forums paradoxically became less scientific and more dogmatic with the influx of atheists and at the time there were these kind of rationalist humanist groups around called atheist plus and then they split up because of feminism some kind of feminism and there was this woman in one of these conferences where she was at a conference and she sat up on the dais and she'd given a speech saying you know i'm sick of being harassed really by men and chatted up and i can't remember her name and so she she said this and then she left she had a drink with everybody got in the elevator to go up to her room. A guy was in the elevator with her and he said, do you want to come up to my room for coffee? And of course, she just spent hours on the stage saying, guys, just don't do this. And uh, so you might think it's just something you can brush off. He didn't actually, you know, accost her. He didn't kind of harass her. He didn't recall cat call her. He didn't, he was really polite. He just said, do you want to come for a coffee? And so the next day, she kind of made a big deal about it. She published in a blog and Richard Dawkins responded saying, Something like, he kind of wrote this letter called Parody, called Dear Muslina. I'm sure women in the Muslim world are really oppressed and are really horrified that, you know, this woman got asked to go for coffee in, in the elevator. And um, so he kind of took the piss out of it. And anyway, so this created kind of factions. There mm. were old factions, which kind of stem from what are called the um, sociobiology wars anyway, but that's a very different subject. But yeah, those these kind of factions began and it was intersectional feminism it was the beginning of intersectional feminism and this was the time as well as Anita Sarkeesian and her female tropes and games thing she as well was an intersectional feminist not a believer in you know liberal feminism choice feminism not anything like that this was a much more kind of radicalized feminism and very Mm -hmm. different from radical feminism itself who support the idea that men and women are kind of, you know, sex is an important variable. They, they still kind of have gender in there and, it, and it's wrong, but intersectional feminism prioritises gender as a completely social construction. That's where we see now where trans women are women and women are cis women kind of thing, you know. So that's mm-hmm. where it's led. What I wanted to ask you about Darwinian gender studies mm. is that when we spoke off air, there was quite a few famous faces mm. that were in it yeah. that have now kind of gone on to greater acclaim and more mm-hmm. prominence of the likes of Gad Saad, you said, mm-hmm. and Claire Lehman, amongst probably many others, David Buss. Do massive. you think you had a role in maybe not the creation of, but a factor in the intellectual dark web sort of coming to being? Yeah, I think Darwinian gender studies, I think as far as I know, because 
you know, Richard Dawkins forums weren't fit for that purpose. There was one listserv, which I wasn't aware of. I've been on that listserv now. I'm not going to mention the name because it's really quite sure. exclusive. And But I didn't know it at the time, and I wasn't a bona fide academic, so I couldn't get on it anyway. So, yeah, I think the creation of Darwinian gender studies created that first space where people could talk about feminism critically and about what, you know, where we were heading and the problems that were coming up ahead. I think Darwinian gender studies certainly, well, it it certainly created the conditions for Quillette because Claire was my admin, one of my admins for five years. And as I say, in Darwinian gender studies, I always kept it very small. I always kept it under 1,500 people just to kind of maintain the quality of the debate. And I still do. It's still going. But uh, yeah, we had top class academics on there, writers, philosophers, and really fantastically clever up and coming people. And I was really, really proud of that. I kind of knew that I didn't have the ambition within me to kind of create a Darwinian gender studies magazine or something like that, or even blog about it, because I didn't know at the time either. I I was undiagnosed ADHD. So I mean, my output was really shit low I was kind of writing about two articles a year (laughs) so I knew I wasn't going to do it but I knew that my little part I was going to really proud that my little tiny part in it would be just creating a place a salon a safe place uh, of all things where we could discuss this I mean Claire was Claire was a student at the time she was doing forensic psychology I think yes she joined we really got on with each other we were really good friends. She, she offered to be a sponsor if me and my son went to Australia. And for five years, yeah, it was, it was Claire. I had five really shit hot admins. I absolutely loved them as if they were my family. And again, really, really proud of them. And yeah, Claire started a blog and I let her promote the blog to everybody there. So everybody kind of got to know her and got to know her writing. As we're talking about Jeff Miller, Gadzad, crikey. I mean, everybody was there at some point. I think. And yeah, when she announced on the board that she was thinking about creating something like Quillette, I was over the moon. I thought it was great because I really wanted the ideas that we were getting out into the mainstream. And I yeah. knew I wasn't the person to do it. So I, I was all absolutely all power to you. Absolutely to go and do it. Yeah. The reason I came across you, Paula, wasn't just purely William's recommendation, although he was a big part, but your pinned Twitter post where Mm -hmm. you outlined why you stopped identifying as a feminist, which I found really intriguing. And the reason you said that is because the conversation around rape and specifically the statistics around prosecutions, conviction rates and stuff like that. Can you explain to listeners what you found when you dug into this and the truth which made you alter your political worldview in such a big way? Yeah. Well, this was one of the things that I thought round about, you know, when um just when I started Darwinian Gender Studies, 2008, something like that, I thought this is where evolutionary psychology could really, really help feminism. Because we seem to be, as a society, looking at this problem that was, to all intents and purposes, you know, like the riddle of the Sphinx, nobody could solve it. You know, what was going on? Why were rape conviction rates only, you know, 7%? You know, and as you get kind of really great kind of dramas on TV where characters would say, you know, only 7% of rapes are, you know, convicted, does that mean, you know, 93% of women are liars? And, you know, that kind of rhetoric's really, really powerful. That just seemed like a ridiculous position for us to be in as an advanced civilization, and that nobody was tackling it. There was already an evolutionary explanations of 
horse copulation and rape and stuff like that and talks about female evolved adaptions to avoid rape things like that and yeah it was it was one of the things that I thought nobody seems to be looking at so I'm going to look at it anyway so I looked at it I looked at this ridiculous you know statistics and something started to look really odd and then right about 2010 there came out a report called the Stern Report on rape I hadn't studied statistics before this so this is something that I thought I'd spotted but because I wasn't confident about you know interpreting statistics in papers I wasn't really ready to kind of say anything but then the Stern Report said exactly the same thing and said you know the way feminists represent rape prosecution and conviction rates by conflating them basically is creating you know masses of misinformation just about what we do as a society how we deal with rape and it comes out you know the famous kind of statistics of you know five to seven percent are actually not correct at all no other crime is calculated in that way so why is rape calculated in that way if you calculate rape conviction the the way you calculate all other crimes convictions i'm not sure what the statistic was then what i do know now the actual rape conviction rate is 69 percent wow whereas after you know the tragic kind of death of sarah everard last year we had people standing mps standing in the houses of parliament this is on now an you know official record stating that rape conviction was as low as one percent and rapists were getting away with it the truth the facts are that actual rape conviction as calculated like other crimes is 69 percent. that's actually that's really really good the way feminists calculate them themselves which is basically by cooking books and adding in things that shouldn't be added in that's how they get this outrageous two percent now I looked at, okay, I was trying to find if you could, if you did, what is calculate other crimes, the way feminists calculate rape conviction. So I wanted to find out if other crimes were calculated as feminists calculate rape conviction, what would that statistic be? And there was an article a couple of years ago, it's in my file, I'll be able to get it out for you and uh, you can put it on the website. And basically the outcome is the same as well, for rape conviction, it's under 2%. So not only, you know, if you calculate convictions in the same way by adding attrition, they call it an end-to-end analysis because it starts with somebody being given a crime number and it ends with a conviction in court. Now, throughout that process, loads of things get, get dropped out, you know, for many different reasons. And again, there's the prosecution rates, rates going to court, and then there are the conviction rates, which are the far end of the end to end. So yeah, all crimes calculated that way are two, 2% or less, basically. That sounds horrific, but that's because a lot of, um, there's just a lot of attrition. There's a lot of things that kind of happen. You know, a lot of them are trivial crimes. A lot of them from friends or certainly domestic incidents where things get withdrawn constantly. And what they've also found is that contrary to the feminist narrative that It is the police that are letting women down, telling them there's just not enough evidence to prosecute. It's actually the police want them to stick with it because they say in the actual, there's an end-to-end rape report last year, which is where the 69% prosecution rate is clearly stated. 
in that they say the majority of rape accusations are withdrawn by their person who put it forward. And that's men and women, because this includes rape of men and women. And of course, well, that's going to include gender. So by this metric then, mm-hmm. Paula, if the 2% or 7% of convictions is false if that's misrepresented then what about the widely banded around statistic that two percent of accusations are false is that more than two percent then or not i don't know i haven't particularly looked at that again i'm not sure it would depend how this how they operationalize the concept of false really is it malicious yeah or is it confusion i'm not particularly looking at that right now because this is a big enough I know this is going to be my dissertation. Sure. So this is this is complicated enough, really. But that is something right. that I do want to look at. But I mean, generally, and I mean, I find this, what's kind of sprung up in society as an equal and opposite negative to feminism and the narrative of all men are bastards, you know, toxic masculinity, all men rape, is, you know, the rise of ideological men's rights groups. Now, I'm not saying all men's rights groups. I know a lot of men's rights advocates who are really decent people and they genuinely worry about men and men's rights but there are just like in feminism there is an ideological element in there where just like feminism they want to kind of throw mud at the opposite sex and say you know all of the problems you're having is the fault of you know this bitch over here whereas in feminists want to say well they generally target young girls they kind of get into schools and and say all the problems that you're having, you know, feeling insecure with your sexuality and and all of that kind of thing. Well, that's because of that bastard over there. And it's kind of socially socially constructed. And, you know, the only way we can get rid of it is to just attack the opposite sex and blame the opposite sex. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of endogenous kind of things that are going on <laughs> um, that are actually, you know, can be explained for the problems that people are going through, especially teenagers. Teenagers are full of angst anyway. You don't need an ideology. Well, ideology is weaponize that angst generally but yeah so i'm i'm kind of I'm, I'm trying to balance the line really with good objective scholarship and i mean from a darwinian gender studies perspective anyway men and women you know as a class well there's more competition within men and between men and there's more competition within women and between women than there is actually between men and women so the battle of the sexes is kind of overstated to a, a large degree culturally because it's kind of convenient to do that for ideologues i want to talk about rape myths in the conversation Mm. now so i read in chanel miller's book she's the stanford university sexual assault survivor it's a really good book her female lawyer tells her that they hope and will push for a male majority jury because female jurors tend to blame the victim Mm -hmm. and acquit the male perpetrator so I've been trying to find out if this is something which happens in our judicial system. And if it does, why do you think women do this? Because this isn't down to patriarchy, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I don't know. I don't know particularly. Like I say, I didn't get a chance to look at that. I would have, would have been interesting to look at how, again, like she operationalized it. It was a book, you say, or was it a study? Yeah, it was a book. Mm-hmm. It was obviously an anecdotal part yeah. of the book, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got to take kind of that kind of anecdotal observations with a bit of a pinch of salt until we can kind of look at it systematically I think anecdotally I've sat in the dock before and looked at a jury during a a trial like that and all of the men I can say anecdotally did look utterly horrified when the women looked particularly passive but I can't imply anything to that really 
So I don't know, that that would perhaps be another thing to look at, what the actual data on juries, rape juries, say. And for the first time, there was a study in 2020, I think, that used actual rape juries for the first time. Every bit of evidence in you know that we see in the news, that we see everywhere else, before then on rape juries were done with mock juries and telephone interviews. And these were the interviews that all feminists were using to promote the idea that rape juries are completely steeped in rape myths and misogyny. And actually the first study that to actually look at the real juries completely blew that myth out of water. Rape juries are not misogynist. They don't believe in rape myths and they are more likely to convict than acquit. So again, another feminist myth. Really dangerous myth, really. Because it makes makes people feel that they're going to be really intimidated going in front of a jury that they believe is already stacked against them. The final topic I wanted to talk about, Paula, before we reflect on your academic journey is cancel culture, because this is something you've been speaking and writing about for a number of years and the female dynamic to it. I believe I'm right in saying you were doing it way before Jordan Peterson was. So why, in your view, is cancel culture a female driven phenomenon? Well, it's curious. Okay, I've talked to my supervisor about it and... Of course, men these days are indulging just as much in cancel culture as women are. And to a certain extent, you look at Soviet, you look at the Stasi, you look at Soviet countries, they're effectively cancel cultures as well, but they're certainly not um, female cultures. But what those kind of cultures did depend on was hypervigilance of citizens from by citizens themselves. And what we know about female strategies of competition is that they are generally less direct than men's you know men men are more likely to go and physically confront somebody if they have a problem with them a woman this is tied to their kind of evolutionary biology is more likely instead to begin to spread gossip Mm -hmm. derogate character socially ostracize if if they can do that if they're in a group of women if women hang around in groups it's kind of like until very recently it was a matter of life or death that you were part of the safety of the group. If you were ostracised, basically, that was a death sentence. So there's nothing I think women fear more, <laughs> or certainly, certainly any more, than being ostracised from their social group. It's something that someone like me, like with Asperger's, get used to very early. And it kind of becomes a bit of a, a strength after a while, because as I see women, people, or you know, cancel people coming after me with cancel culture, the first thing they'll do is try to kind of belittle you and say you you don't belong anywhere. We are ostracizing you from this group. And if actually you turn around and say, actually, I don't care. I've never been part of that group anyway. Really, you can't kind of touch me with that threat because it, it doesn't matter. You take away their power. Yeah. yeah. But most people do actually, and most women especially, do really want social feedback, positive social feedback. You know, they love getting likes. I've heard some of, some of my friends talk about kind of they really take likes on Facebook really seriously. It's like, oh, she only got two likes for that post. It's kind of, and it's, what? <laughs> Who cares? But then... And it's Facebook, yeah. so not a lot of people are using that anymore. <laughs> but they take it really, really seriously. And it means something quite profound to them for some reason. But yeah, as I say, there's loads of research in evolutionary psychology about this anyway. You're not going to see it in feminism, for example. There's a, I bought a book a few years ago. I was kind of looking for 
feminist books about the problems women have getting along. I found two books. I found one called Conflicts in Feminism and another one called Bittersweet, which, again, they're kind of all anecdotal kind of things. None of them are um, particularly empirical or measured or anything like that. So, And if you find yourself criticising a woman, you end up being accused of internal misogyny or something that corresponds to feminist theory. Or you've been, you're, I don't know, a tool of the patriarchy, something like that. It's all kind of circular and it doesn't really kind of apply to actual endogenous female psychology. Let's reflect on your journey now, Paula. Mm-hmm. What has it taught you about yourself so far? The autism Asperger's diagnosis is probably it sounds really weird I always kind of believed in myself and I knew that even though (laughs) people thought I was weird or you know didn't want to hang hang around with me or something because I mean I was terrible female friend I would just never bother being sociable I just wouldn't see people for like weeks and then I'd turn up and they'd go what what (laughs) it's just well what am I supposed to yeah you're supposed to do that you're supposed to come around and talk to me you're supposed to be on the phone all the time it's oh shit sorry so I mean I just couldn't (laughs) most of my friends are just male and I kind of never talk to them sometimes for three months and then we like talk to each other like you know nothing that's kind of how I yeah it's great kind of <laughs> and we don't kind of owe each other anything and we don't have to go out we don't have to go shopping oh god we don't have to go shopping and I've kind of seen this in my son to a certain extent because he's asked me as well when you grow up in kind of a school system especially you know in when you're young you kind of realize there's something different about you and uh, you don't know what it is and that can affect your self-esteem certainly And it can end up making you think, you know, I'm bad. I'm a bad person. And that's something that kind of stays with you all your life to a certain extent until you can kind of get, maybe get a diagnosis, understand that you're not bad. You're not different in a bad way. You're just different in a different way. Uh, There's nothing bad about you. But I mean, by that time, your lovely peers will have kind of hammered that into you at some point. So yeah, that diagnosis, certainly to a certain extent, it kind of gives an explanation to... Because, I mean, before that, I'm saying when I was an actress, there was a time when I was going to be a Bond girl. That's the kind of thing I had going for me. I was a good mimic and I wanted to do funny stuff. People didn't like me pulling faces and stuff like that. They said, you know, you're a really pretty girl. You shouldn't pull faces. And it's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be a, you know, just a woman standing at, you know, the roulette table looking at Piers Brosnan. I don't want to do that. I was just... And they thought I was, you know, complete at the amount of people I, I met around about that time because again we're talking about kind of this social anxiety that kind of certainly in my in my very early teens a kind of stutterer and just wouldn't talk to people to a certain degree but then once you're an actor you get given scripts and so you can you can talk a lot and everybody I met all these men would kind of look at me like I was and they think I was incredibly stupid they really think thought I was stupid and I knew I wasn't stupid but I could I couldn't articulate any of it because I was kind of tripping over my words. I was literally tripping over my feet as well most of the time. And I was just kind of going with the flow because I didn't have any idea kind of, or any kind of big ambition about where I wanted to go. I just, um, I didn't have a safety net of a family or anything like that either. I was just kind of floating around. And after the fluoxetine, after I suddenly these kind of concepts, and as I said before, I was able to kind of uh, synthesize ideas that really kind of ridiculous, complex ideas and um and now I still kind of have a lot of baggage. I'm like 51 now because of late diagnoses, because of certain things. You carry a lot of baggage with you and it doesn't really bother me apart from when something might go wrong, really. I don't kind of carry it around with me like, 
like a bag of bricks all the time. I'm not kind of walking wounded. I'm not kind of that person at all. When you get disappointment, sometimes the weight of the past kind of comes on your shoulders. But I think I'm philosophical enough now to understand that that will pass in a couple of days. You know, I just let that time pass. We've talked about your academic journey, Paula. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey. So you've kind of already answered this first question I always ask to every special guest. (laughs) But take me back to early life and teenage years and maybe tell me about the person you were then and your biological dad too, because I know that's something you really wanted to talk about first. Yeah, I went because, you know, that your podcast's about mental health, yeah? And Mm -hmm. I do think that's kind of probably one of the biggest variable that we need to actually deal with in society. It's not kind of drugs particularly or anything like that, because it's mental health that leads, is generally the path to all of those other things. And not having a safety net in life is a big predictor of not having a, a good time and depression, anxiety, kind of these things, because obviously it makes you vulnerable for one, to predators and to exploitation and stuff like that. So yeah, I was fortunate enough to kind of lose my dad when I was two years old and I never knew him. I had two older sisters who did. Most of the time I remember as a child being asked as a, when people stopping on the street or something with my mother and going, oh, I you know, but your dad loves you. And I'd, you know, the first thing that would come out is my dad's dead. And that would just stop them dead. You know, they'll just go, Ugh. And it's like, that was, but that was the most common thing. That's a conversation thing. killer. Yeah, yeah. That, was the, yeah. that was the thing, the most common thing that I ever said to people when I was like five, my dad's dead. And they would go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's kind of, I didn't know. But yeah, conversation stopper, definitely. <laughs> nah. And yeah, it, it's kind of like one of those horrible, not fairy tales. It was a time, I think, where single women would look down on, perhaps, I don't know. But she made a really terrible choice. And she um, hooked up with an uh, alcoholic who turned out to also be a paedophile. <laughs> and um, it was violent. You know, all the kind of shit. I mean, my sister's got the worst of it to the degree of the sexual abuse. We all got it kind of a violent kind of thing. So I kind of grew up again. We're talking, it's, it's kind of how it's hard to pass sometimes between the stress response and the autistic stress. And that constantly kind of triggered fight or flight thing. Is it kind of that and as well as my childhood? Because that basically was my childhood, mm. like just kind of hiding under tables and and seeing horrible things and running out of the house and calling the police and stuff like that quite a lot. So it's kind of difficult to pass, but it's probably impossible to pass that kind of thing. But yeah, and <sighs> the death of a parent might bring some families together. It did the opposite. It just became a case of a, I basically just had to raise myself because everybody else was just trying to survive as well. And <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, it was the opposite of what you'd expect a family or what, what you'd hope a family would be. And none of mm. us were looking out for each other. And as often happens with that kind of thing, my other parent became violent and my sisters became violent. And we all became violent eventually with each other. I was the youngest, so... And I kind of made a decision very early on that I was never going to hit my mother back because I thought that's not something I want to ever kind of have to live with. <laughs> I became just good at standing there and just taking it, basically. Mm. Because the alternative was worse, I thought. You were told to keep what happened to you and your sisters a secret. 
you yeah. refused and you said this is what saved you why did it save you i guess your soul and how did it lead to eventually getting out of this horrific situation i'm terrible at keeping secrets i don't know if that's kind of asking thing again but i can't i just can't do it i can't lie i mean i, I can lie but then five minutes later i've got i've lied and i'll just say oh yeah <laughs> it happens with people's birthday presents you know it's kind of like don't tell them i've got the mess and it's then five minutes later i'll go oh i've got your this and it's like oh shit <laughs> i forgot spoilers uh, <laughs> but um i just knew what was happening in the house was wrong it was wrong and it's like why 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 are you telling me not to tell anybody i mean the thing is because of what's happened recently in the last five years asked the police who helped us during that time you know if i had gone to the police would there have been a conviction and they said sadly probably not in the 70s it wouldn't have happened mm. I think it saved me because he knew I'd just tell everybody. And I mean, I told everybody that we were being beaten up. I told everybody that, you know, the police were always around. I mean, everybody knew the police were always around our house by then. And nobody did anything anyway. So I'm not really sure. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know what he was doing to my sisters. He was only doing it to one sister at the time, the oldest one. Do you think the abuse was a factor in the way your education panned out? How do you mean? So you said you left school with no GCSEs yeah, well, and no qualifications. Because when puberty hit, and this often happens with certainly girls on the spectrum, the wheels fall off completely. And I started going out to clubs. I was only 14, drinking. The bizarre thing is, I think by this time my older sister had moved out. She got married as soon as she was 16, so she could leave. I'd been left in the house. I was the only girl left in the house apart from my mother. So... I still had, didn't know about what they'd gone through. But by this time, he had attempted to do the same to me. And my mother and my sisters, I know now because of the trial recently, assumed that he was abusing me and didn't do anything about it. It was just one of those Jesus things. Christ. My, my mother kind of had this kind of really weird hate-hate relationship with me, really because she thought I was ha basically having an affair with her husband. I was going out drinking, but I was a virgin. I was a virgin until I was like 18. But all of my family thought I was actually... My, my sister, my sister who left, had a baby soon after that, and she wouldn't let me touch the baby, because um, she said I'd get his germs on the baby. And I didn't understand. It's kind of... But yeah, so... Mm. But again, just all my family thinking this is happening. And it's not happening. But yeah, so I was just kind of left off the leash, basically. Can you tell me about the process to get justice now for his crimes? Because this sounded very difficult to achieve. Mm. But also, you were really passionate when we spoke off air about the importance of saying that if you can pursue it, you can get justice. Yeah, this is the reason why I'm doing this for my dissertation, even though a lot of people accuse me of internalised misogyny because, you know, I'm going contra to the feminist narrative, to the rhetoric, all this kind of thing. It, it never stops to amaze me when I talk to women who've been sexually assaulted or raped, that they absolutely are 100% invested in that narrative, that the system is stacked against them. And I cannot say anything to them to get them to think otherwise. 
even the fact that I've been through the process myself, I've studied it objectively, I've looked at the statistics and the, our case, it was a historical case, there was no physical evidence and the police and the CPS were absolutely 100% committed to getting us justice. And these things are never going to be easy. One of the things that feminists say, it's doubly traumatising to put someone in the dock and have to sit, have to talk about these things. That's the same for murder, assault, all these kinds of things. You cannot make this process easy. You can't say, we shouldn't do it because it's going to hurt, because it's going to cause pain. Because the end result... That's how court process works. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the end result, yeah. ...is absolutely worth it, having that validation. Now, yeah, how it happened, my... um. I have a half-brother who's, this man was his father. He's 10 years younger than me. And he met a woman who had two kids. I know. He's never seen his father for 20 years or something by this time. And I don't live anywhere near that family. And I don't really have anything to do with him. We're still kind of estranged. I get on with him. I speak to him often. But I don't speak to my sisters and I don't speak to my mother. And yeah, he met a woman who had two kids. And... His father came back on the scene and my older sister basically thought we can't let him near those kids and she went to the police and made a historical complaint and so yeah a kind of five-year process kind of began where evidence was gathered she gave her evidence my sister gave her evidence they asked me to come in as a witness because i wasn't actually a violence you know you can't be prosecuted it's got a statute of limitations or something like that and because what he did to me again it was borderline it kind of he tried to do something and he couldn't be prosecuted for that so i was basically just there to corroborate what our childhood was like basically mm -hmm. which was kind of easy to do and it was almost lucky for us that none of us talked to each other for 20 years and our evidence matched up and they also put our mother on the stand which was interesting so that was the thing that started it all off and I can't remember exactly there were two or three mistrials sorry there was one mistrial where that was my fault because again Asperger's I kind of said something that was what do you call it anecdotal and it hadn't mm -hmm. been corroborated but it was in the it was my witness statement so I didn't think there was anything kind of wrong with me repeating it and his defense was shit hot and she just jumped on me and I kind of said no mistrial right kick it out and so we had to wait for like a year before we could get back in he had an ear infection, so he got a doctor's note. And there was some other medical reason he was exempt again for when the trial was set again. And then on the fourth time, I think, he did try to kill himself the night before the trial. But <laughs> the policeman, when he was actually kind of our liaison, physically went to the hospital, saw that they were just superficial kind of wounds and dragged him out of the hospital. It's <laughs> a big shout yeah. out to that police officer. But yeah, this is why what you would think is a really difficult case to prosecute. And yeah, it was it was unanimous. But eventually, by the time we got there. So this is why I'm doing it. Because it's kind of maybe it's like there's a bit of a kind of an approach phobia that people have. They want justice, but they're scared about what it will take from them to get it, perhaps. And of course, the feminist narrative doesn't fill people with a lot of confidence around that. So this is just my little contribution to try and encourage people, you know, because it's, it's in black and white in, in the end-to-end -end 
report from police last year, they they specifically state, we want you to stick with us. If you stick with us, we get justice. But the reason why people don't stick with them is because they withdraw the complaints, not because the police are telling them that there's not enough evidence. Let's reflect Mm. on your journey now, Paula. So A, how these experiences shaped you into the person you are today. And B, if you could go back and talk to the 16-year-old Paula who had just left school with no GCSEs and was told to work in Tesco's by a teacher or the Paula whose stepfather was trying to abuse her sisters and trying to abuse her or the Paula who had just considered going back into academia, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? Well, I certainly wouldn't have waited 20 years (laughs) after my first degree to get back into academia. I don't know how I would have been able to do it then because basically I've been been able to kind of build an audience and supporters for this kind of thing because of the internet. And before then, we didn't have the internet. I didn't have any way to communicate with people and have donations to kind of to study, to pay for studies and stuff like that. That wouldn't have happened pre-2000. So again, I don't know how that would have worked out. I had this kind of romantic idea that, oh yeah, life be- life will begin at 50 and I'll, I'll do my PhD when I'm 50. And then it's like, when you're 30, you don't know what it's going to be like when you're 50, honestly. Just don't wait that long. Don't do it. If you can, if I can go back to, wow, six, oh God, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. I wouldn't change anything because this is a kind of philosophical thought experiment I've kind of had with myself in the past. Like if you could go back and change a fork in the road or something like that. And I wouldn't do any of it because I'm here with my son. And if I changed anything in the past, I wouldn't be. Within this thought experiment, obviously, you're aware that your son in a different universe exists, but you're not in that universe with them. You're in a different universe. And it's kind of how much would you miss them? Would it be worth it? Would that price be worth it? And for me, it's a no. It's not. And there's a lot of time that you lose and you never get it back. And that sometimes can jar. So I'm just trying as much as I can not to waste any time now, particularly. I finally, you know, got the ADHD diagnosis, finally got those meds. My output is going up for the first time, which is really good. I've got lots of ideas. I want to get them out there. And that's basically the biggest thing is just not... I mean, a lot of people that I know now are academics who started in their 20s in their 50 now, and they're kind of thinking about slowing down. And, and I'm kind of thinking, I'm just kind of starting there now. I'm not thinking of slowing down. Mm. Even though to others, it looks ridiculous. It's kind of, you're a 50-year-old fucking woman. What are you doing? And I guess it does look silly, but as long as I'm alive, that's the only time I've got. So I can't, just because I'm old, just because I'm 50, doesn't mean like, that I have to stop doing stuff and changing the destiny you know that was kind of set out for me and I don't I don't know what the end end will be I might fail it's it's kind of maybe it comes back to that kind of idea of it doesn't matter if you know I don't belong to an elite group it's kind of I'm not doing it to belong to an elite I learned very young that I'm never going to belong to an elite group I've just got to find my way by myself We've come to our final topic of conversation, Paula, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? It's really good. 
it's really good. I feel over the moon with her meds, absolutely. It's twice now in my life that a kind of an intervention with a, a drug has literally like, just created kind of opportunities that I just wouldn't ever have had. It's probably the same for lots of people with ADHD. Twitter's great with the word limit and stuff where you could just pop out little brain farts. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. What age, Paula, were you when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, five? Wow, okay. Very young. Something like that, yeah. I remember complaining to my mother that I was depressed. And she went, don't be so fucking stupid. Five-year-olds can't be depressed. (laughs) I guess that was a sign of the times, wasn't it? Can you tell me about the first positive conversation maybe then that you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big moment or a big burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite easy and normal to do? Oh, God. I don't know. Everybody used to call me sultry or miserable. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real juxtaposition, that, sultry or miserable. Probably just talking to myself. I don't know. I can't think. It's really just been a slow kind of process of just mm, self-forgiveness, I guess. After, what was it, first kind of dealing with anxiety, kind of saying, you know, well, this was, a, you know, this is a, you know, your definite neurotransmitter disorder. And uh, it's not something that's intrinsic to your personality because actually dealing with anxiety actually allowed me probably the first time to express my personality properly and not worrying about not being normal not trying to fit in because ugh, I mean honestly I've never been more depressed than when I've been trying to act normal because everybody everybody normal knows that you're not normal as well you know yeah so yeah it's just you can pretend to be normal but I wouldn't recommend it because that's what will kill you that's what will absolutely drag you down exactly just be yourself and just become resilient in knowing that there are people who are just not going to like you and it's not your Mm. fault it's nothing to do with actually you it's them and don't let it bother you on writing then what has been the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health related but it doesn't exclusively have to be Mm. mental health i don't know really not anything specifically i don't read self-help books i think learning the kind of mechanisms of evolution and you know the different levels of analysis why we have certain propensities or likelihood of acting towards those propensities and not helps again but that's kind of more of a an intellectual thing that's happened when i was young i used to read a lot and i used to write poetry i read kind of the rosemary Sutcliffe books and and they're, they're all about kind of stoicism certainly with Lancelot and wearing his hair shirt and things. And um, what else? I just lived in my imagination a lot of the time and I would write my own stories as well. I've got a film that I can pinpoint, but I haven't got a book that I can pinpoint. Yeah, go on, give the film then. film that really helped me at one point or another. It was a film called Don Juan de Marco. And it had Marlon Brando and Faye Dunaway and Johnny Depp. But it wasn't a big film. It was kind of like a little small indie film. But it was like the most, it was absolutely, I walked out of that cinema just overjoyed. I walked in really depressed and I walked out just like thinking, wow, that's kind of like just telling you, you know, just to kind of focus on the positive things that you can because, you know, time is passing. 
every single moment and you never get those moments back and it doesn't matter about your foibles mm. i kind of remember it and i remember that moment and i just remember that um it's just stuck with me a real kind of celebration of human nature and eccentricity and as a final question paula what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it Hmm. well that's kind of a bit like to me the goal of feminists say they want to eradicate violence against women that's never going to happen unfortunately that's just not a practical goal i think again pertaining to that kind of question i think we can't forget that there are bad actors out there and they're not bad actors for any particular reason they're literally just born that way they have their dark triads dark triad people psychopaths and they get a kick out of hurting people targeting vulnerabilities and hurting them so what i think is the internet or social media isn't probably going to be the best place for people to share particularly i mean i encountered this just recently with the online autism community it's a really kind of highly politicized place that is quite abusive and there's a major safeguarding issue there because it exploits the fears of people on the spectrum and it does that Mm. thing that you know we talked about it threatens them with ostracism from the only group that would accept them happens in a lot of mental health yeah. spaces i think and as it well, seems to me that these spaces, communities. Yeah. it can be great but it can be awful yeah, yeah, yeah it seems to me that some of these spaces especially ones that are advocating kind of self-diagnosis are actually he- are actually led by people with psychopathy people with dark triad traits they have captured these arenas to prey on the vulnerable people mm. who turn up at them hoping to find kind of solace and community and yeah. when someone like me the turns up, have got the keys to the yeah. building. Yeah, yeah. And when someone like me turns up and says, <laughs> well, you're supposed to be a charity. It shouldn't matter if somebody believes in trans women or women, that, that you're going to actually you know, open up your resources to them. But for some reason it is. Intersectionality has now in, infiltrated autism charities. There needs to be a serious, serious discussion, I think, about safeguarding. Particularly, you know, just about rules of engagement on Twitter. What are the the legitimate, I don't know, comments, who constitutes, is it kind of somebody with a ridiculous name, like, you know, my dog, Fred, and they've got an avatar. There's no way to kind of track them down. Does that person suddenly kind of hold some kind of weight? Does their opinion hold some kind of weight when they're attacking, you know, somebody whose identity is up there and who is accountable for what they say? Anonymity, I can't say say the word. Anonymity is an issue for some. But again, we need to kind of be able to strike a balance of safeguarding. At some point, we need to kind of work out, I think, something like the Queensbury rules of engagement. And if, you know, you do something that wouldn't be acceptable in a seminar room, in a conversation on Twitter, something like that, then that comment or that opinion needs to be struck. To some degree, I'm not really sure how it would work, but that's what I mean. Nobody's having the conversation at the minute. Social media is just running riot and nobody knows kind of how to control it or rail it in or yeah yeah and big tech have got the biggest Mm -hmm. say in it on that depressing note (laughs) to end paula wright thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and chatting to me okay thank you i've really enjoyed it hopefully i haven't been so breathless with covid but uh yeah thanks
Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Paula for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for checking in with me and for sharing some of the experiences that she's gone through, a lot of which were extremely horrific. So again, really thankful to Paula for sharing her story. I'll put some links to Paula's social media and her Substack Dangerous Ideas in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. If you want to support us further, you can give us a five-star rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. I haven't had one in ages, so please do write one if you can, guys. Help me out. Help me out with those algorithms. If you want to go even further, you can support our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it is always okay to bet.